Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, January 27th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on this podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writer Twy Turnbuoy. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So today we are missing our managing editor, Jacob Hall. He is out for today, but he'll be back next week, and he'll probably bring that that insult book with him which i don't know maybe we can keep him off this podcast maybe that's the way to stop it what do you think ben like like we, we just like you're like <laughs> chick you have every wednesday afternoon off he's banned from all water cooler episodes moving forward yeah i for one welcome jacob and his wonderful insults from that classic tome <laughs> <laughs> by the way i i often do get emails to peter at slashfilm.com where you can email your feedback your mailbag questions concerns thoughts uh for people like actually like being like peter like i don't know how to phrase this but people that don't get that if i didn't want the mail if i didn't want the insult book on the like i'm the one that edits the podcast i can cut it out <laughs> i don't know it's just funny to me that you don't know that you're in on the gag yeah you're, you're such a convincing actor peter you've you've pulled the wool <laughs> over their eyes i don't know i thought it was pretty obvious i thought i was a really bad actor uh unlike the actor that jacob hall cast me in in last yesterday's podcast but we'll talk about that later um okay let's let's jump into it this this episode is going to be a lot shorter than a normal water cooler episode. I haven't been watching much this week. I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, and also, Jacob is not here. And uh, I think it's safe to say that, like, virtual Sundance, uh, the screeners have gone out early. So some people have been watching some stuff. So so this is going to be a slimmed down version of the water cooler. But uh, let's get into it. Uh, let's start with what we've been doing. This week, I didn't do much. Actually, I went out to uh, Secret Cinema is this company that does these events in the UK. I've always wanted to go to them. They've done events for Back to the Future, the Star Wars films, and then also like some weird movies like Dirty Dancing. And they're basically like a screening of a movie that is uh, enhanced with an interactive 
experience where it, which it puts you inside the world of the movie. So uh, with Back to the Future, they actually shuttled people out to a recreation of Hill Valley. And before the movie, you're actually walking around Hill Valley, interacting with characters from the movie. Very, very like, uh, I guess, Star Wars, Galaxy's Edge or Westworld and, and without the robots. Uh, <laughs> that, that kind of like fully enveloped experience. And the uh, and then they show the movie. And then during the movie, like, you know, when the DeLorean is going 88 miles per hour to get the 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 bolt of lightning at the end of the movie, spoilers for Back to the Future, like that actually happens in front of you while you're like sitting there in you know, the town square. Um, so I've always wanted to go to one of these things and they've never done one in the U.S. thus far, but they have uh, brought over. They did a thing in the U.K. for Stranger Things and they brought it over here. It started, I think, in September or October. Of course, it's during the middle of this pandemic and California uh, is kind of has some of the worst of it. Um, and uh, so they had to adapt things into a drive through event. And I've done a couple of these drive through events. They're typically not that great because, you know, you're driving your car through this this thing, uh, this experience that I, I mean, this experience in particular was crafted to be a thing that you like walk around and experience for yourself. Um, so uh, I, I want to say uh, thank you. We, we did get these tickets from uh, a fan of Ordinary Adventures, uh, the YouTube channel that I run. Um, I wasn't able to film this event because they don't allow filming during the event. Although after going, I've seen some YouTube videos where people did film it. So if you want to see it, it's out there on YouTube somewhere. Um, but not from us because we followed the rules, darn it. And, uh, it's really weird because this takes place in downtown LA and I want to say it took an hour, like in line in a car to even get to the point where the, like the thing started. And we had like these, like quote unquote VIP tickets and it starts at, uh, Starcourt mall. You pick up like. They have someone in a mask comes over and like gives you like some goodies from like like some candy and sodas and stuff like that. And then uh, like there's like this whole DJ up on stage and the kids from Stranger Things are wandering the the car like this. It almost is like set up like a, a drive in theater and the kids are like wandering and having interactions with people from, you know, the safe distance of having their them being in their cars with their masks on and windows up and them being outside the car. Uh, then it go, uh, it, it takes you into this parking garage where you end up going up a few levels into this like Russian test site that then you go up a couple levels and it brings you into the, um, the upside down. Uh, and then at the very end, there's like this whole cinematic uh, sequence at the top of the parking garage where they're having like some people on like the stranger things, like, uh, recreations of the stranger things characters on stage interacting with the bad guys and the demigorgon and everything i gotta say honestly i was quite disappointed by this event it, it, it was um i don't know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to wonder what it would be like if it wasn't in your car but having it in your car it just felt like most of the time was spent um driving to the next like set you know, quote unquote set and then parking your car. And, and it's also weird too, because like, okay, so you drive into like this Russian test site, you know, where they have that, like the, the portal or whatever that they're working on. 
from Stranger Things season was that three. two or three. Yeah. Uh, and like the Russian like people there are like guiding you to park your car in different like locations. I don't know. It's like, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> uh, it, it was a little bit fun, but I think to pay for a car, it's like over a hundred dollars to go to this thing. So I, I'm, I'm not sure it's worth it. And I don't know, me saying that to you probably doesn't do anything because I think it's already sold out for like months and months and months. So me telling you it's not worth it probably doesn't help you any unless like maybe you're planning on going to it. Maybe you could sell your tickets. But I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I got to see what it was. But it makes me wish that uh, someday when this pandemic is all over, I can experience one of these uh, secret cinema events for myself. Like, you know my own body walking around this world that they've created. Do you think they would have done it in a mall if they could have? That would have been great. That would have been awesome. Yeah. Like these events are like, I don't know. I typically like this kind of stuff. I, I, I hate being like negative about this because, you know, the stuff they did with like Tron legacy at comic con where you got to go into Flynn's arcade and then like the, you know, the, the, the machine in the back opened up and then you get to like, get shrunk into the world of Tron and then you're in the uh the grid. What's that? The something the line club over the line? End of the end line? Of, end, end of the end line, of line yeah. club, yeah. Yeah. Like uh, that stuff usually is so good, but like when you're in your car and they're like having to manage like where everybody's parking their car to see the next scene and that next scene play out in front of you. And then there's also like they're trying to fit so many people there, so many cars there that they actually have two of each character in front of you. So like you see Dustin on your left uh, doing a scene and the sa- there's a replication of Dustin on your right doing the scene for the, you know, the cars to your right. So it's like, I don't know. It's just so weird, but I, I just can't wait for this whole drive through thing to be over. I like, have any of you guys done any of these drive through events? Like they do a lot of them here in California. Like they did like one at six flags where you drive through and like they, lit up the park with like Christmas lights and stuff like that. I didn't do that one. Um, is this a thing that's like going on in uh, your neck of the woods in New York and uh, New Jersey and in Florida and in Indiana? Is this like a thing or is this just like what they're doing here in California? I talked about a, a drive through Christmas light thing, um, but honestly, that's that's a pretty regular thing around Christmas. They have the, the big drive through Christmas displays. And I, I've heard about some, like drive through like haunted trails and things like that that were happening around Halloween, but I didn't try any of them out because I don't like normal haunted houses, so I wasn't gonna do a, a worse drive through one. Yeah, we had. Um, I was looking up drive through light shows here near Christmas time, and they were all like seventy five dollars. I was like, I'm not fucking paying that. So we, <laughs> my wife and I just got in my car and we just drove around different neighborhoods and looked at lights for free. And I was like, this is much better. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's, de- it's definitely priced for like minivans full of families as opposed to just like a couple who wants to see some Christmas lights. Yeah, I'm not like, yeah, I'm not going to drop $75 to like sit in my car when I can do it for free. I'm cheap is what I'm saying. It's kind of funny on one side of the coin. They're like trying to encourage like safety. You're going to be in your car. You can go out and do something in safety, but we're going to charge you a lot of money. So we're kind of encouraging the drive through experience where you want to pack your car with as many people as possible. Which, uh, you know, if you only have two people in your household, maybe that involves getting other people from other households in there. Uh, But um, I think at the L.A. Fairgrounds, they're doing a thing right now that's like a 
it was originally not going to be a drive through event where like they have like dinosaurs, like they have like like full size dinosaurs and you drive through it and you play like, you know, you tune your radio to a certain radio station and it tells you about the dinosaurs as you're like driving by them. But I don't know. It's just so weird. We live in like the weirdest time, guys. <laughs> um, HJ, what have you been up to? I attended the early press day for Raya and the Last Dragon, where I saw some uh, footage from the film, um, including the in the opening scene of the movie. Uh, and I this I you can see some of my coverage on uh, slashfilm.com. I interviewed uh, directors Don Hall, Carlos Lopez Estrada, producer I was not sure, and screenwriters Adele Lim and Queen Nguyen. Um, it was. Funniest for me to interview Queen Nguyen, he's a Vietnamese American playwright, actually, uh, because I saw his play when I was in D.C. Um, and I went to see it with my parents, which ended up being a horrible idea because it has like some like sex scenes in the scene, which was in the play, which made it very awkward. <laughs> so it's <was> really <laughs> funny to me that he's writing a Disney movie. Um, but yeah, you can check out that coverage on Slash Film. And we've talked a little bit about before on the podcast about how different it is doing virtual junkets versus in-person junkets. And I feel like it's even more clear with these kind of early press days um, with like this, like with Ryan the Last Dragon. Um, I did one of these kind of early press days uh, for Coco way back when, and we we got to go to Pixar and we got to like see the concept art and ha- like have these presentations from the animators and the team um, behind it into like the work they did. And it's so different doing it virtually where it's just basically a PowerPoint presentation over Zoom. Like it's, it's just, a, it's so much more impersonal now. And even though we got to see like new footage and some concept art and stuff, it just wasn't as exciting and um, interesting and, and like involved as well when we do it in person. Uh, and have you, any of you guys been able to do one of these kind of uh, more involved junkets versus just like the regular junket um, virtually? Yeah, I did uh soul when, uh, when that came out and when they did the normal press day and it was all virtual and yeah, you're totally right. It's, you know, it's definitely less exciting because you're not on Pixar campus. It, it's PowerPoint presentations. And I, I also greatly miss being able to go to the Pixar gift shop because they have so many cool things there that you can't get uh, anywhere else. You can only get um, on Pixar's campus there. So, um, you know, it's, it's obviously always great to hear behind the scenes stuff about these movies and, you know, talk to people like Pete Doctor and uh, um, Kemp Powers and everything, but it's, it's definitely uh, missing that personal touch. Yeah, for sure. And um, I am allowed to give a reaction to what I saw of the footage from Ryan the Last Dragon, although I don't feel comfortable doing like a full reaction because it was only a couple of scenes. Uh, but from what I saw, the the first scene especially feels very much like a mix of Indiana Jones meets Avatar The Last Airbender, the latter, the latter of which has been noticed by a lot of people who are fans of Avatar The Last Airbender and saw that in like the trailers. And I actually asked um, uh, Don Hall and Carlos Lopez, no, I asked, I was not sure about that as well. And they, they appreciate the comparison, but it was actually not an intentional one. But um, both properties draw a lot of inspiration from Southeast Asian and, and in Avatar The Last Airbender's case, a lot of East Asian culture. So there would be some overlap, but it's like bizarrely similar. It's kind of funny. It's just like the character designs, the outfits, even the way that the action is choreographed is just like incredibly similar. So it just feels like... and. 
the the way that they introduce it to it, they um they introduce like this land that's divided um, by all these nations, and uh, some big climactic event happened that put the world at stake, and that's very Avatar. The Last Air. It's just like it's almost exactly like the intro to Avatar: Last Airbender. It's kind of insane, but <laughs> the animation- I'm, I'm going to call BS on that because they first of all these are animation people. They've seen like maybe not the director or maybe not. Do you know what I mean? Like the people working on this film have seen Avatar The Last Airbender or at least a good portion of them probably have. So like they knew that there was going to, I don't know. Maybe maybe it wasn't like directly inspired, but I feel like someone on the production went up to the the director and the the writers and was like, oh, you know, this is kind of similar to this thing. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it feels like there's some sort of, knowledge there because it just plays out so much like it it almost felt like disney was like looked at avatar last airbender and was like let's have one of those but i don't (laughs) want to make any leaps of assumptions Uh, there yeah i won't go that far but i i I think it's it's ridiculous to to to, uh, in the assumption that they did not go and look at avatar the last airbender when people like brought up the fact that like oh there's some similarities here yeah because i i have a lot of filmmaker friends and they they look at everything. They're sourcing. Do you know what I mean? Like when someone says that, like, you know, oh, Tenet might be kind of like this thing in your movie. They go and watch Tenet. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, mm-hmm. it, that's how it works. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, other than that, it does look, it looks promising. Um, it looks very action packed uh, and epic. And um, I appreciate the Southeast Asian inspiration. I think that's really cool. And even like some of the naming feels very inspired by things that I recognize, like Vietnamese naming. So that's really cool. And I, I'm not going to go too deep into this. I really want to be like a big cheerleader for this movie because it's, <laughs> it's you know, drawing, directly, drawing inspiration directly from the region where my family comes from. Um, but... I'll probably go into this later in like a deeper article or something, but um, I feel like I'm starting to lose patience uh, for movies that try to overreach in terms of representation. And like, there's a lot of talk about how this is a melting pot of all like these Southeast and Asian cultures and not a specific one. But in some cases, it almost feels like it's like picking and choosing in in that kind of way and trying to uh, represent the whole region in a way that feels very noble, but just doesn't. I just can't connect with it as much as um, like a specific story. And I feel like with these kind of pieces of representation on screen, I've always connected even more so to like specific stories, even if they're not like specifically Vietnamese, if they're like, you know, like the farewell, for example, was such a, such a specific story, but it felt so universal in that specificity. And even Coco, it's a culture that is not really related to mine, but that specificity of its um, story felt just uh, I felt like a big connection to it. And hmm. again, I, I haven't seen enough of Raya to make a big um, assumption about like its representation yet. And I'm excited and really happy for all the people involved, some of which I uh, know professionally like, through the Vietnamese American circles. Uh, but yeah, that, that's kind of like the feeling I'm getting from it. And I don't know why it is, but it's just because like, like you know, Moana did the same thing in that it's a wider uh, a portrait of like inspiration from like wider Polynesia um and uh I think that in some ways maybe that was more successful because it was a musical and I feel like maybe they missed the boat by not making Raya a musical because a lot of non-musical Disney films are really hit or miss for me I feel like they go too hard and trying to be smart and glib and smug and I don't really enjoy that kind of tone as much 
I, I like the earnestness that comes with musicals. And I feel like that would mesh well with like that kind of representation that I, I want to see. So I don't know. That's just me sort of thinking about these things while watching the very short minutes, minutes of footage I saw yeah. from Ryan the Last Dragon. The animation looks spectacular. Kelly Marie Tran is really great in this role. I'm really happy about um, her performance that I've seen so far. And there's also, you know, Daniel Day Kim and Gemma Chan um, and Aquafina's a, a, a hoot. So, um, yeah, that's my, like, rambling <laughs> thoughts on Ryan the Last Dragon, uh, which you might see more of in, like, article form later. Yeah. W- when does Raya hit uh, is, is it coming to Disney Plus? It's coming to Disney Plus premiere on uh, March, and I forgot the exact in March. The exact date is, is on on the internet. So this is one of those ones that they're gonna they're hoping people will pay like twenty extra dollars to see or something. Yes, exactly. So it's both theaters and Disney Plus premiere. Hmm. Okay, Brad, what have you been up to? Um. So I recently interviewed uh, director Edgar Wright of uh, Shaun of the Dead and Baby Driver and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World fame and also uh, the pop rock band Sparks for Sundance. Um, it's in support of Edgar Wright's first uh, feature length documentary called The Sparks Brothers. Uh, it's about this uh, band Sparks that's been around for over 50 years, over 25 albums and um, it's, uh, I, I can't say anything as far as reviewing the movie right now, but it comes out on, uh, Sundance very soon. So if you have the means to get a ticket to try and catch one of the virtual screenings for virtual Sundance, you can do that. Uh, and the interview will be coming, uh, shortly after the movie premieres, which is coming this weekend. And, uh, yeah, if you, if you like Edgar Wright, I would just recommend that you, uh, check it out if you can, otherwise it will uh, end up getting released sometime later this year. And it's just, it's always a joy to talk to him because not only is Edgar Wright super passionate about, uh, filmmaking and music, but he's extremely knowledgeable about both. And just, he's, it's so easy to talk to him. You know, he, um, dives into just so many details and is enthusiastic about everything he works on. And it's, uh, I never get tired of, of talking to him. I could just sit and hang out with him forever and never be bored. Yeah, no, I love talking to Edgar, uh, and I'm excited to see this. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Um, last week, I talked about this the stage show that has been released as a documentary film. It's called In and of Itself. I high, I was speaking highly of it. I basically told everybody to turn off the podcast and go watch this. Don't even watch a trailer. Don't read about it. Go, 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 basically is what I said. I've seen it two times in person, uh, one time in the documentary form. And I'm probably going to watch it again at least uh, sometime next week uh, if I can. Um, but thankful, I am thankful that you guys actually gave this thing a chance. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about it. Brad, what did you think of In and of Itself? Yes, I uh, went, 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 and watched uh, <laughs> in and of itself. And I um, I didn't watch any trailers or anything about it. And I honestly didn't even remember when, because uh, Peter, you talked about the show when you saw it. And I didn't realize that I was vaguely aware of it already um, once I saw the, the big board of cards that are part of the show where you pick like wh- what you choose to represent yourself on this this big board of cards. It's I am. It says, you know, blogger or traveler, you know, leader, these kinds of things. Uh, and so I even after realizing that it didn't help me know what to expect from this show. Um, and it's just uh, an experience that like like Peter says, you really shouldn't look up anything about it. You should just go and watch it on Hulu. It is um, it's very like like Peter has said before, very easily to you can easily call it a, you know, magic show. But it is so, so, so much more than that. It's such a well written piece of like just a, a performance, you know, and there's just intimate storytelling here and 
while it does have what you would call tricks, it's it's not like spectacle necessarily. It's something that will wow you and will impress you and will move you and confound you. But it's it, we're not talking like David Blaine kind of stuff or anything. Like there's some real heartfelt meaning and tear jerking elements of this performance that will just like really hit you in the feels and you will also be equally dumbfounded as to how what happens especially at the end of the show uh unfolds because it's just it's all incredible it's 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 all inspiring and uh i i really yeah i, I don't want to say anything more than that just because it really is just about this experience and having it unfold and just you know roll over you yeah ben you also saw this I did. And I echo everything that Brad said um, and what you've said in the past about it, Peter. I think, uh, you know, it, it's a lot of times for um, for magic performances, uh, sometimes filmed versions of magic things. When I'm engaging with something like that, I uh, get impatient between the, the tricks, between the illusions, whatever. And I want to I want to just get to the next thing because I want to be wowed by, you know, what I'm ostensibly there to see. And in and of itself is the rare magic related property where uh, the magic is almost like incidental to the the larger stories that are being told. Like Derek Delgadio, the the host and, and sort of central figure in this thing is like such a, uh, an engaging and charismatic and like um, empathetic uh, human being that like I, I'm, I found myself more interested in the stories that he was crafting and the the narratives that are sort of crisscrossed throughout this whole special than the, you know, several, uh, I guess if you want to call them tricks, you can. He does some like close-up card magic and and a few other things sort of scattered throughout. But um, and all of that stuff is great too. It's not like it's not like that stuff is bad in in this uh, show. It's just I was um, you know, all the more impressed by the narrative stuff and, and then the structure of the show itself. Um, and, you know, I think some of that should be credited probably to uh, Frank Oz, who directed this movie and directed the stage show as well. And I understand that those two like really, you know, collaborated very uh, heavily together to sort of create what this thing ultimately ended up becoming. So, um, yeah, man, it's just a, a really, really great piece of work. I, like, I, I, it's my favorite movie of 2021 so far. And that's, I mean, it's like we're, it's January 27th. So who knows yeah. if that's going to stick around, but um, it's really, really good. So uh, Chris, what do you think about it? Uh, so yeah, this is great. It, it made me cry. There's some great stuff in it. Um, I have a few issues. Um, it's it's very performancey, And I know that sounds like a stupid thing to say because obviously it's a performance, but I feel like a lot of the stuff in the movie probably plays better live. Like if you're in the audience, it probably plays better than it does on film here. Um, like once you realize, like, you know, I think in the beginning it says like there was over like 500 performances of this. Once that you have that in your head, it's hard to sort of divorce yourself from the idea that as good as Derek Delgado is, he's, he's giving a performance and like, when he gets choked up, when he gets emotional, it's like, oh, that's, you know, he's he's emotional right now. But it's like you, you start to realize, like, he's doing this, you know, <laughs> over 500 times. He's not probably really getting choked up for real. He's he's acting, basically. And you sort of start to see through the cracks there. Um, I, I don't think that takes away from how great the movie is. It, you know, like I said, it, it really got to me emotionally. But there there are just some things here that I feel like they're very stagey and they're very, 
you know, like I said, they, they'll work better as when you're, you're there live. I also, I, as impressive as there's a thing at the end where he, he basically, he correctly predicts all these cards that people had earlier in the show. And he goes through every single member, not every single member, but a large part of the audience. And that felt like the weakest part of the show. And I don't understand why it's at the end. Cause it just goes on forever. And I was like, man, I, I really want this, this part to end. <laughs> it's cause it just keeps on going. And again, I feel like that would probably play better if I was like in the crowd and I was like, Oh wow, this is cool. But watching yeah, I was going to say magic, like I feel like is at its best when it's personal to you and right. especially when it's being done to you. And one of the great things about the show live, I would agree with you, Chris, on this one. One of the great things about, about seeing the show live is usually on a stage show, you don't, it's more performance based. Like if you have a close up show, you get to like have people choose cards and interact with the audience and have personalized uh, interaction with everybody but with a stage show you really don't it's really you're up there on stage performing to the audience and I think one of the genius things about I mean, one of the many genius things about the show and uh, from a magic standpoint is he found a way to have a personalized bit of magic with almost every single person in the audience at the end and right. when you're in the audience like that's incredible but yeah it could yeah I understand how I understand what you're saying right and it's I, and I was like I was looking up after I watched, I was like reading on, on, you know, just about the stage show. And I, I like, I found someone's like personal blog and they were talking about how, like, uh, for me, the most effective part of this whole thing is this, this thing where he, he calls people, it's seemingly from random from the audience has them pick these, you know, letters, these letters that were, you know, actually mailed to him and the letters turn out to be personal. It's like, you know, Oh, how did he do that? But I was reading like a blog and like, someone was like, when I was in the crowd and this happened, the person reading the note didn't get like emotional at all. And I was like, that too sort of made me think like, you know, this is deliberately edited in a way that they're cutting together the most tear inducing moments. Like, like I said, there, there are five over 500 performances. You don't, we only see cut together, like, I don't know, like five or six. And it just started making me think about like the, the 500 more that didn't go quite, as well as they do. And I don't know, I guess what I'm saying is as good as this is, it felt really manipulative <laughs> at times. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, art in general should manipulate you to feel certain ways, but, uh, but art always takes the best take. Do you know what I mean? You're always, no, I'm not, I'm not take. disagreeing like, with that. I'm just like the best take of like the scene. They're, they're not going to show you the, the one where the guy messed up or didn't. No, I don't want them to show me that. I'm just saying, I feel like if this were just a tiny bit better made, I wouldn't be thinking about these things, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I feel like if there was just a smidge better, and again, I think this is great. It really worked for me. It really got me choked up. I just feel like if it were just a tiny bit better, I wouldn't be even thinking about these cracks. I wouldn't be like, well, I wouldn't be hemming and hauling is basically <laughs> what I'm saying. I, so what I, they should have done, Chris, is just put the, the because um, right in the very beginning of the movie, you see this little piece of text that's like, this show has been performed in LA like 500 nights or whatever. Like, just put that at the very end. Like, put that right before the credits and you won't be yeah, thinking I, about it. I think that's that's a good point, Ben. Yeah, because like you're like I don't, and again, this is just my personal thing. You know, not everyone is going to be as fucking crazy as I am, but like the minute you start with that text, my mind immediately starts thinking about you know, oh, how can I see through the cracks here? And like, yeah, I think Ben is right. If they had just put that at the end, I wouldn't be spending like the whole show thinking about these things. But again, 
I, I want to hedge all what I just said here by saying, again, this is really good. It's really worth seeing. Uh, there's some, there's some great stuff in here. Um, yeah. So, and I would, you know, I would, I would encourage everyone to, to seek this out. Cause even if like me, you see through some cracks here and there, you're still going to get something from it. Yeah. Uh, not to justify anything, but the two times I saw this on stage live, the, the people did have hugely emotional reactions and, I looked around and almost like everybody was like in tears. My audience, uh, there's, I, I said this last week, but there's th- this documentary version of this does some great things that aren't able to do live. Like, you know, you're seeing 10 different reactions or whatever from people that were on stage for that effect, where when I saw it live, I saw one reaction, which as you mentioned, could, it, it's totally reliant on a real, real person from the audience. And, you know, their reaction to it might, might be nothing. I mean, like, like, like it's, he's putting the whole show in their hand, um, with, with that trick. Uh, but I don't know. It, it's to me, I don't know. I, I was talking with David Chen. I, I did this podcast with him on his Patreon about this. And, uh, David Chen's like very analytical about everything. And he wanted to talk about like, you know, how, how was this trick accomplished and whatever. And like, I, I think we got to the point of like, I think if you watch this documentary and you watch that trick and you, you ask yourself, how is this trick accomplished? I think within a couple minutes, you'll f- completely figure it out. It's not like, it's not the simple, like it's, it's, it's not some very like complicated answer. I mean, as far as I'm guessing, do you know what I mean? I don't know, but it's not like usually tricks have like a very complicated thing. There is some complex complexity to this, but I think for me, we, we came to the conclusion that it really doesn't matter how he did the trick. Do you know what I mean? Like if you know how the trick is done, which I think, you know, I think I have an idea. I think David Chen has an idea of how this trick is done. That doesn't make that moment on stage of that person reading that thing any less magical. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that that sort of emotionality that you're talking about, uh, the last time I can remember experiencing something like that in uh, like movie form is um, the Won't You Be My Neighbor documentary where like the, the Mr. Rogers documentary where basically yeah. like they sort of like the movie comes to a stop and it like basically has you, you know, <laughs> think about like people that you love and mean a lot to you in your life and stuff. And it's just like very, um, yeah, just like personal and intimate in ways that, you know, mainstream American movies are, are normally not. So um, it, it's definitely easy to sort of like puncture that. Uh, it's a good, th- this movie does a good job of, of puncturing that, um, you know, those barriers that we put up. Yeah. I, I know I'm biased. I know I'm uh, a lover of magic. I'm a magician. Um, D- D- Derek Delgadio is not a person with magical powers. And I don't think anybody comes away from this show thinking that. But I what? do think. I hope not. I mean, if if so, please. I, I, I think he clearly t- says that he's the wolf. Or, you know, at one point he's talking about the wolf. Anyways, uh, the. I mean, if you can, you know, connect the dots and stuff. Um, but I do think that to the closest that is possible on this earth, Derek Delgadio has magical powers because what he created on that stage is truly magical. 
in my mind. So, uh, Peter, before we move off of this, I have to ask you just, you know, as somebody who's obsessed with magic and has spent yeah. a lot of your life, uh, you know, in that world and, and you've talked previously about like wanting to develop, you know, an, an act <laughs> or, or, you know, a few minute show or what a set or whatever you want yeah. to call it, whatever the term is. is, is this like, um, completely demoralizing to you to watch something <laughs> yeah. this is it like a filmmaker watching mad max fury road or something and just being like well fuck like what, what am i supposed to do here yeah I, I don't think there's any magicians that watch this show and they're like oh i can make a better show than that. like it, it really is like the top of this art at this time in the the, the world I, I mean i i did say last week that i feel like magic is in its infancy as an art and like it relies too much of on twists and turns and like, Oh, here's this big surprise at the end or whatever. It's like, you know, it's like an M night Shyamalan kind of movie, you know, from early days or whatever, which I mean, it's not saying anything against six cents or anything, but um, it, I think this is where magic needs to be headed and it's very hard to do. I feel like a lot of people watch the show. There's been magic shows that kind of tried to copy this formula because this was very profitable. You know, this was in L.A. and New York, and it made millions and millions of dollars. Um, it was a very huge success, and people have tried to copy it with other famous directors, sometimes named Frank, uh, <laughs> and uh, other compo- you know, big name composers and whatever. And I, I feel like they have not. Um, it's trying to copy that whole idea of like trying to elevate magic to, to uh, with story and stuff. And generally it, it becomes one of two things. It becomes, I hate to go on about this, but it becomes one of two things. Uh, if you ever went to a Catholic church, sometimes you'd see someone in Catholic Christian church who was a magician who'd come up on stage and do a trick. And it'd be like, this SpongeBob represents Jesus. And this, like, it, 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 there's this whole Christian magic. You should search it. It's like the worst. It, it's basically spelling out metaphor while you're no, I know exactly what you're talking about because I went to Catholic school. So I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. It, um, and the, I think the brilliant thing about Derek is he tells these stories and um, I think, Ben, you said it was like the tricks are incidental. I, I would I would disagree with that. I think they're so like that gold brick and him covering it up with the card. I don't know. I feel like that's such a metaphor. Like the whole thing is a mm, metaphor okay. for what he's yeah. the story he's telling. And uh, I, I think I, like, I, I think like one of the secrets to this to making it work is. This is like the first time I can remember where I, I've seen a magic show where it's not supposed to be cool, for lack of a better word. Like mm, so yeah. many magic performances I've seen on TV, the magicians are like really fucking smug. <laughs> like they're like, ha, look what I just did. It's Will Arnett and Arrested Development yeah. with a knife between Yeah, his basically. Teeth. Like even like that show um on net was it called like Magic for Beginners? Like I, I thought that was a fun show. But even I forget what the guy that Magic for humans. Uh, Justin Wilman. Yeah, like he's really good, but even he has that like that smugness to him where he's like, ha, look at this, look at this trick I just did. And like there's not like a single moment like that in in uh in and of itself. There's not where, where he's just like, Behold, this fucking cool <laughs> trick I just did. And I think that's kind of the secret to why it works so well, because the magician isn't putting himself like above you, I guess. He's not like he's not like, ah, I'm this all-powerful guy. And you're a bunch of idiots in the audience wondering how I did this trick. And that's that's not what this show is doing. And I, I think that's yeah. kind of the secret to why it's so effective. 
I think that's definitely one of the secrets. Like a lot of kids discover magic at a phase where they are the loser and it helps them be cool to other people. And it, it becomes kind of a power play of, of sorts, what you're saying. And I think that's one of the big problems in magic. <laughs> one of the many big problems. That, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. But I, I, I am so glad that this show was captured on film and or on video, I guess in this way because it was this thing that I saw twice and could have conversations about it with a few people who also saw it. But I'm, I'm so glad that uh, this is going to allow more people to see this and more conversations to be had. And even if it's not the live version, which I think, uh, you know, did play better. Like, you know, when, when you're in that theater and that person's up on stage reading the letter and you're not cutting between things, there's like, you know, that what did they say? Like, you know, the air is like so thick you can cut it with a knife. Like it really feels like that. And it's there's no edit points and you are like in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anyways. Uh, so, Chris, you seemed like you were the I don't want to say most negative because you weren't negative. It seemed like you liked it, but you were the least positive. Uh, you would still say for people to see this. Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, like I said, the. I have a few issues, but I, I think overall, this is great. This is definitely anything that can make me feel anything in this, in this hard world where I'm just, I drift through life feeling numb uh, is, is, is a winner for me. So if, if, if you're in search of some sort of emotion other than fury and, and rage, uh, I recommend this because it'll make you, it'll make you feel, uh, it'll make you feel good. Even if you're like crying your goddamn eyes out, I think you'll actually come away from this feeling good. Cause I, I know I did. Okay, uh, Ben, what else have you been watching? Uh, Chris and I both watched a Netflix, um, I guess, miniseries, a, a TV series called Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. And this was, I noticed it was trending on Netflix recently, and I'd heard some good things about it. And uh, my wife and I dove into this thing. It's only four episodes, and I think each episode's like, I don't know, 40 minutes or something like that. So uh, not a huge commitment, but um, I enjoyed this quite a bit. It's It basically traces the... Um, the Night Stalker case in Southern California, um, which happened like, I guess, throughout the the 80s primarily. I don't remember the exact dates. Maybe Chris, you can help me out with that. But it was like the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, Taylor Russell directed this and I was not really familiar with his work, but I thought he did a, a great job here. This is like one of the best true crime things that I've seen in in quite some time. It, it basically follows these two um uh, LAPD, uh, or I'm actually, I'm, there's a distinction I should say between the Los Angeles Police Department and the LA County Sheriff's Department, and that distinction actually becomes like a contentious point throughout this series because, um, you know, if you've seen like shows like Unbelievable or or uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark or a lot of true crime stuff in the past few years, they, one of the big talking points is like how serial killers are often able to get away with the things that they get away with is because of a lack of communication between these different, you know, departments and, and umbrellas and, and jurisdictions. Yeah. Jurisdictions and stuff like that. So um, these guys, uh, the, the two primary uh, primary figures in this documentary are uh, Gil Carrillo and Frank Salerno, who were like, sort of Frank Salerno anyway, was like a big hotshot guy who had solved this, this previous case. And uh, this documentary paints Gil Carrillo as this like, up and coming, like a uh, you know, hungry young cop who gets partnered with this guy that he idolized, and then they just run into this complete shit show of a case where this this guy 
was raping people and murdering people and abusing children and like all of the worst shit that you could imagine and seemingly doing it all at random. So it's it's very, very difficult to, you know, pin down an MO or like any of the stuff that you would normally be able to do in terms of like profiling a killer and getting inside of their head. A lot of that stuff was sort of thrown out the t- out the window because uh, of this sort of randomness or seeming randomness of uh, these horrific, horrific crimes. So um, I-, I thought it was really well put together. The the sort of uh, downside to it is that it can be a little sensational at times. There's this moment, especially that really rubbed me the wrong way, where um, the uh, there's this hammer that's drenched in blood. That's clearly like B roll that these documentary filmmakers shot. Um, it's not supposed to be, you know, archival footage or anything. And they just drench this thing in blood and like drop it on the floor in super slow motion. And like blood is like spinning all over the screen. And it's just like, guys, this, you don't need to do this. Like the real crimes and the real horrors of what happened here are terrible enough without like underlining it a billion times with this like unnecessary (laughs) B-roll, I thought, um, but, you know, in terms of like the on balance, I thought everything turned out really, really well. Um, they actually do this really cool thing where they recreate the uh, all, almost all of the major crime scenes in CG and uh, sort of fling the camera around them in a way that and and it sort of like establishes the the geography of a place and really puts you in there and makes you feel like you understand exactly how everything is laid out in a way that sometimes these true crime docs, they'll just show you, you know, uh, pictures of Polaroids that were taken from the crime scene or something. And it kind of flattens it out. And like, you don't really get a great sense of like what the space was like, but, but recreating the whole thing in CG like that and, and sort of zooming the camera through. Um, and, and it's like down to very specific details, like, you know, this, this shoelace was dangled, you know, at this angle, like they show you the, the crime scene photos and then they show you, uh, this recreation. I thought they did a really great job. I mean, that must've been a tough, you know, uh, I'm, my heart goes out to whoever the animators were that had to create, like recreate in CG, these like horrible blood stained, um, you know, uh, environments where like people lost their lives in the most brutal way possible. Um, and like how, just thinking about how much time those people had to spend, uh, you know, meticulously recreating those scenes is kind of heartbreaking, but um, it worked really well um, for me anyway. But um, Chris, what did you think about this show? Uh, I thought it was good. Uh, I have two issues. One, there's a part where one of the cops, I think it's the uh, Gil, whoever his name is, literally like confesses to like beating information out of a suspect. Yeah, it's a, that's a different guy. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a whole different. Um, yeah, I know, I know exactly where you're talking and, about. Like, like the, the, the series doesn't like comment on that at all. Like it just prints it as like this, this perfectly acceptable thing. And like, I don't know, maybe I'm just like more heightened to that now in the wake of everything that's happened the last year with, you know, police brutality and how it's become more in the forefront. But the way it just presents this guy who's just like, he just tells this story about he literally just like punches information out of some guy. And I was like, that seems a bit <laughs> like, I yeah. know it was, you know, it was the eighties and, and uh, the police force was probably even more corrupt then than it is now. But it, it's like, uh, eh, that doesn't sit too well with me. And 
Uh, were you going to say something else, Ben, on this? I forget. <laughs> yeah, during that moment, like I think my wife and I literally paused it and we we're like, can this guy be prosecuted for admitting this on this Netflix show now? Like, what's the statute of limitations on yeah. admitting beating the shit out of a suspect and getting information out of him? It's like, yeah, I'm. I was shocked at the brazenness at which with which that guy just admitted that information on the show. Right. So, like, I had a problem with that, and then. This this docuseries does this thing that I feel like a lot of true crime things are doing now, and there has to be a, a, a balance to it. And it's the sense that they really don't devote a lot of time to the killer himself, uh, Richard Ramirez. And I get that. For a long time, true crime has been criticized for essentially like glorifying the killers they're covering. I feel like every docuseries, every documentary about Ted Bundy makes this mistake where it's like, aha, Ted Bundy, this handsome man who uh, was a, you know, a lawyer and he seduced mm-hmm. these women. And like, it, it really glorifies the killer. And a lot of do- recent true crime things have been trying to tamp down on that. And I feel like the best example of that is um, I'll be gone in the dark, which does a really great job of, of really telling the victim story and the survivor story. And it doesn't, devote too much time to um, uh, the Golden State Killer. And it works well in there. And I don't think the same approach works as well as here. I feel like we don't learn like anything about Richard Ramirez. And I I get not wanting to like devote too much time to him, but he feels like (laughs) he feels like a supporting player in this story, which seems very weird since it's, you know, about his murders and like, when he shows up at the end, he's like just sort of like in the background in like courtroom footage. And, you know, I'm not saying they need to have like, you know, extensive, like here is Richard Ramirez and here is what he did. But I feel like this docuseries takes a really reductive approach where it's just like, he was pure evil and that's all you need to know about him. And Mm -hmm. that's really not, (laughs) you know, people aren't really, you know, people aren't born evil, really. Like they're, they're, they're a product of their environment and that doesn't excuse his actions. I'm not saying, ah, this, this series should have sympathy for poor Richard Ramirez because he clearly was a fucking monster, but to not devote like any real info into who he was and, and his background. And he came from like a very abusive childhood and none of that is like touched on in this at all. And that's real. They talked at at one point about how I think it was his dad that like strung him up to a cross in a cemetery and like left him there for hours. And I was just like, Jesus Christ. Like, I mean, I understand a little bit of, especially, you know, at at an impressionable age and like having really messed up parents is, seems to be like a through line for a lot of uh, serial killers and and stuff like that. Um, So, but yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Like that, that, but like uh, even that, like not- even that part, it's like they just like toss that information off. Like yeah. I feel like they're kind of like breezing by the whole his dad crucified him thing. Like yeah. maybe we should talk a little bit more about this. <laughs> can, yeah. can I add something here? Because I, I watched some of this because Kitro was watching it and I, I kind of it was on in the background for me, if that makes sense. Um, it is weird that like from these kind of true crime things the two things I really look forward to is like, you know, how did they solve this crime? You know, how did they catch the guy? Number one. And number two, why was he doing it? And I I know that we're never always like, you know, diagnosing why a serial killer is a serial killer. And we're never going to like completely understand that. But I feel like that's one of the pieces of the puzzle that I always want. And 
this didn't, at least from what I saw, didn't have it. But it did spend some time on like the women who took naked photos and sent it to him in jail and how everybody thought he was sexy. And um, like, I don't know, it was weird that they focused on that part of it, but they yeah. didn't focus on, you know, the yeah, there's like there's a, there's a significant time spent on like how he became this like sex symbol. And that's interesting, but I feel like it needed like it's what is it like four episodes, Ben? I watched this a while ago on screen. It's yeah. like, so I feel like it needed like one more episode that was just about his background. And then you would have four other episodes that aren't about that to counter right. balance. I just feel like there needs to be a balance. Like I'll be gone in the dark was, I think it was like eight or 10 episodes. So it had enough time to space that out. Whereas this it's shorter. And again, I get not wanting to glorify the killer and, and make him this, you know, icon, but I just feel like if you're going to tell a story about a serial killer, you need to like sort of explain who the serial killer was. And I just yeah. feel like, he was evil. Like I, like I already know that. Give me, give me some more. That's all. Yeah, yeah totally fair. Okay, uh, and that is available on what HBO Mac? No, Netflix. That's on Netflix. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I have been watching some stuff, but I'm not uh, able to talk about them until a later date. Some TV shows, uh, Apple uh, TV Plus. Not uh, like nothing like super exciting. I'm not like gloating that i've seen stuff but i'm just explaining why i have really nothing to talk about here i will say one one thing i wanted to complain about that this probably only affects the people that are here on this podcast and probably nobody listening so i'm not sure why i'm bringing this up uh but apple tv like usually when when you're pressed and you're watching screeners they'll put like your name on the screen as a watermark so that you can't um you know uh, pirate the movie and put it online like that's that's what press would do um but I, that's fine that's totally fine uh but usually it's like in like in the screen at a certain like part of the screen it doesn't move around or change so your eyes kind of like adjust to seeing your name there and like it almost disappears right mm-hmm. um apple tv plus their screeners are weird where they have my name on the screen, but it like will disappear for like 30 seconds and then it reappears for 30 seconds. Then it disappears for 30 seconds and it reappears. So it's like you get used to like not seeing it there. And then all of a sudden like something blinks in the corner and is the name and you're like, why is this happening? Why is this distracting my viewing experience? But I, I, I get, I get that this is like something that doesn't matter to many people of the press but apple why are you doing this like you're all about presentation why like you, you should know like there are people that understand aesthetics and you know whatever if you have something blink on screen that's your eye goes to it and it distracts you from the thing you're watching but uh have any of you guys watched any apple tv plus screeners and experienced this I have. I don't remember if it did that. I've seen so many screeners at so many different platforms and they all seem to handle <laughs> those markings differently uh, and all like annoyingly so. So I mean, there's no really good way to do it. But yeah. Um, yeah, I did, but I don't remember it doing that so much. I This is for my Wolf Walker screener, um, but I can't recall it being that uh, distracting. Uh, well, this is a screener site that none of you will definitely watch, but Crunchyroll, which is the anime uh, <laughs> streaming website, has the worst screeners 
possible. Like they put your name and email in giant font so that covers like two thirds of the screen and I could barely see any of the of the actual footage. So it's just it's <laughs> awful. I'm like, this is just this is an anime show that like maybe a very niche audience is gonna watch. You don't need to do this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, moving on. Brad, what have you been watching? Um, so again, I've laid pretty low key with the exception of upcoming Sundance stuff, taking up some of my time. So I haven't watched a lot of other movies, but I will update you on my friends watching progress because, uh, I have now finished the fourth season and, uh, not a bunch of like super notable guest stars this season. Um, I would say probably the, the, the best one was seeing, uh, Hugh Laurie, pop up in the uh the big season finale um but uh, peter i told you about this when it happened uh pen gillette did pop up on an episode as uh and and this is a very old sentence an encyclopedia salesman <laughs> uh, so uh obviously he pops up all over he's been on the simpsons and always like has guest spots on a bunch of different uh sitcoms so that um you know you're one of the stars from your favorite tv show of the decade <laughs> was appearing on friends <laughs> Hey, he's not just like like a magician doing a cameo. For a while, he's like I don't know if he was like seriously trying to be an actor, but like he was in a lot of stuff as like actual acting role. Like yeah, he's in uh, Hackers, the movie Hack. I mean, it's not a great movie, but I mean, I like the movie. It, it's 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 like a uh, guilty pleasure. But he's in a lot of like. He was also in the CD-ROM game Steven Spielberg's Director's <laughs> Chair, where he and Teller framed Quentin Tarantino for murder. Oh boy! What? I've I gotta I I don't think I've seen that. I'm gonna have to like look up if there's a need the oral history of that. They play well in Steven Spielberg's Director's Chair. You're a director making a movie, and the movie you're making stars Quentin Tarantino as this guy in jail. And Penn and Teller play evil magicians who like framed him for murder. <laughs> and Jennifer Aniston is Quentin Tarantino's girlfriend and she's trying to clear his name. And uh, that's all I really remember. Steven hey. Spielberg's director's chair, everyone. Thank you. That's amazing. I want I wonder if this is able to be found anywhere because I wanna I wanna play it now. There's a YouTube version where someone like cut all the I guess you cut call scenes. them cut scenes, even though they're not, I don't know if they call them that then, but they, they cut all the fake movie footage together to make a movie. I'll, I'll see if I can find it. <laughs> yeah. Um, we can throw it in the show notes. And uh, so back, back to friends. Sorry. I know we went into a fun tangent there, um, but I, it's uh, because I haven't seen all of, all of friends. I, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know because I never really paid attention to it. So like I actually have uh, still successfully like get surprised by certain elements of the show. Um, however, I had one ruin for me, and only just shortly before I would have experienced the surprise myself, and that is the fact that uh, Monica, Monica and Chandler end up dating, and it was because it was a question on Jeopardy, specifically about their relationship, like uh, the week before I actually watched this the episode where they actually get together, which is towards the end of the season. So I, it's it's tough avoiding spoilers for friends, but I've done a pretty good job so far. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh chris what have you been watching uh sorry i forgot i had something else to say on this show uh, i watched the little things which is the new uh warner brothers slash hbo max movie starring denzel washington uh rami malik and jared leto and this movie is uh it's fine i wouldn't call it terrible it's not good either my review is up on slash home.com um this this uh, the script for this was actually written back in 1993 by John Lee Hancock. 
And uh, for a while there, a bunch of directors were considering directing it. Uh, Steven Spielberg was going to direct it at one point. Uh, Clint Eastwood was interested. Danny DeVito was considering directing it. Uh, And just none of those versions came together. Uh, And now the film has finally been made with John Lee Hancock directing his own script. And uh, interestingly enough, rather than update the script, he just kept it in the era it was written in. So it's a period piece and it's set in the nineties. And, and that's really the most interesting thing about the movie because uh, it doesn't tell you it's from the nineties up front. There's not like a title card that says like 1993, the movie just unfolds. And it took me like 10 or 15 minutes to realize like, Oh, this is set in the nineties. Cause no one uses a cell phone and all the computers are like big boxy things and all the cars are old. And uh, so I thought that was interesting. But beyond that, there's really nothing here you haven't seen before. And, you know, to give John Lee Hancock the benefit of the doubt, he wrote this before Seven came out. You know, Seven came out in, I think, 95. And this was written before that. So a lot of people are saying, like, this is basically just a ripoff of Seven. And it kind of is. But if you want to give John Lee Hancock the benefit of the doubt, he wrote this before Seven. So it's not a ripoff, maybe. But it's just there's nothing in here you haven't seen in like a million different serial killer movies. Um, the performances are fine. Dental Washington, always good. Uh, Rami Malek is, is fine here. Cause he's playing like this, like smug jerk. And I think he's kind of really good at that. And I don't really like Jared Leto. I think he's, you know, just, just annoying, but I have to admit he's very good in this movie, probably because he's playing a creepy weirdo and he seems to be very good at that. So, uh, you know, I, this will be on, I think it's on HBO Max this week on Friday. And I feel like people are so desperate for new entertainment that if you want to watch this, if you want to throw it on HBO Max while you surf your phone on Friday night, you'll, you'll get what you want out of it. You'll be, you know, distracted for a few hours, but there's, there's nothing here. That's like, wow, what a good movie. You know, you'll, you'll forget it pretty much the the moment it ends. Yeah. I should mention a bunch of us have been watching uh, Sundance screeners. So that's why there's a, you know, a lighter than usual what we've been watching segment of this week's water cooler. But let's move on to what we've been uh, what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating? Uh, So I got around to trying one of the new flavors of Oreos. Last time I talked about the Brookie one. This one's a little bit more uh, basic. It's a chocolate hazelnut Oreo. And they've actually done hazelnut cream before, but they did it with the, the golden Oreo cookie. And this time it's with the normal chocolate Oreo cookie. And I actually think that I like it better with the golden Oreo because the with the chocolate Oreo, even though it doesn't really taste like chocolate, it's just the I, I don't think the flavor goes with the uh, the chocolate hazelnut cream as well as the golden one does. The golden cookie kind of offers a, a reprieve from the, you know, extra, you know, <laughs> chocolatiness of it, I, I suppose. So, but yeah, if, but if you like, uh, you know, hazelnut, then I, you, I think you'll still enjoy them because it's it's still, you know, good cream inside of an Oreo cookie. So, uh, and then timed around, uh, you know, the upcoming Super Bowl, uh, Lay's has uh, a new game day chili flavored potato chip. And uh, these are these are pretty good. They um they really do have like the, the perfect, uh, the perfect seasoning and spices to bring the chili flavor alive. It's not... Um, a spicy chip. It's just it just has just the right amount to, to actually give it that 
uh, that chili flavor without being something spicy. Because like there's a Doritos uh, that is like it's, I think it's like spicy chili ch- cheddar maybe or something like that. It's, it's the one in the purple bag I think, and that one has a little bit of uh, a kick to it. Um, but this one is 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 fairly tame and uh, does a pretty good job of capturing that you know game day chili flavor. It would I haven't tried it with cheese dip yet, but I I'm sure it would be uh, delicious with a really good cheese dip. And then um, a while back, I talked about there's a new Snickers bar that is um, peanut brownie, where instead of having uh, the nougat inside, it ha- it's basically a brownie with the caramel and, and peanuts. Um, and they've also turned that into an ice cream bar. And as somebody who's a big fan of the the regular Snickers ice cream bar, it's like one of those that you you know grab if you're at a gas station and you feel like you want some ice cream. You're like, oh, yeah, that's a good standby. This is actually... Uh, better, I think, than that because it's chocolate ice cream instead of vanilla, and the the small brownie pieces in it uh, give it and make it make it chewy, make it uh, a little more chocolatey, and it's it's not overwhelmingly so even with the chocolate ice cream. And maybe that's just because I've always liked chocolate ice cream with brownies in it. Uh, when I was a kid, that was like a favorite thing that I would get from you know Dairy Queen or whatever ice cream place we would go to. And so, uh, yeah, Snickers peanut brownie ice cream bar, I think better than the original. And uh, all of those you can find at whichever stores. You know, I'm not sure if this is a new thing or not, but Kitra got these. Uh, you know how they have like mac and cheese in a cup kind of thing. Yeah. From Kraft, uh, she got one that was like Cheetos mac and cheese. Have you ever tried that? Oh, so I haven't tried it yet, but I, I have. I have both a one of those little cups, and I have like a box that's like the the normal like Kraft macaroni and cheese box, but it's it's also the Cheetos uh, brand one. So I haven't tried them yet, but I do have them. Okay, report back on a future water cooler episode. That brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to peter at slashfilm.com. We're looking for mailbag questions for future episodes. So please send them to peter at slashfilm.com. And please take, you know, 30 seconds out of your time. Head on over to our iTunes page. Write us a sentence or two of, you know, what you like about the show. Give us a five-star review. Uh, tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow.